I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey gang, Kate here. Welcome back to The Drop-In. Thank you everybody for the lovely words about last week's episode. I really enjoyed hearing from from Lee, Lee Dykes. He He's someone who, the, the kind of person that we barely hear from, but is actually shaping the football that we watch every week. With that in mind, today we're going to be speaking to the man who runs perhaps the standout club in the Premier League this season, not Manchester City. It's Brighton. They're setting the standards for the rest of the division and Chief Executive Paul Barber is at the heart of it all. He's had a long career in football at Spurs, at Vancouver Whitecaps, and he's been Brighton's chief executive since 2012, when the club had only just returned to the championship from League One. But Paul and the owner, Tony Bloom, have set their standards extremely high ever since. And now, next season, Brighton are in the Europa League. It is one of the stories of the season. And no, Jules didn't tell me to say that. So we're going to go and get under the skin of it all today. This is The Drop-In with Paul Barber. Four years ago then, you and owner Tony Bloom told the fans forum that your ambition was to be an established top 10 club. Today, you're in the Europa League for the first time. What does that mean to you? Well, I think it's very special for the club. It's 122 years of history um, that has led to this. And obviously, the first time to play in Europe is a fantastic achievement for the players, for the staff, for the coaches. And obviously, we're delighted for the fans who have been through a lot over the last quarter of a century. Um, And now they've got European football to look forward to. And it's been great to see some of the uh, celebrations around the city as well. Various bits of uh, memorabilia about the fact that you, you guys are going to be playing in Europe. I always think that's one of the wonderful things about football, that what it can do for the local community. Yeah, the club is still very, very close to the community. The community helped save us 25 years ago. Um, they came together and, and just wouldn't let the club die. And, uh, you know, I think this uh, latest achievement from the club is a, is a way of paying back in a small way for that support. Yeah, quite. And you joined the club, of course, in 2012, just as you'd made it up into the championship from League One. So it must be, it's quite an extreme change of circumstances from the, over the course of your career at Brighton. How do you reflect on that yourself? Uh, yeah, it's been an amazing 11 seasons for me at the club. I mean, we, you know, Tony and I, when we first met back in 2011, we had a, a long discussion about where he wanted the club to go and what we both felt it would take to get it there. Um, and the first part of that was establishing a very clear vision, which was, you know, first of all, to get the club into the Premier League 
um, then to stay in the Premier League and then to get into the top 10 on a regular basis in the Premier League. And obviously, if you're doing that on a regular basis, then your chances of getting European football um, are, are much higher. And obviously, in the last two years, we've achieved a ninth place finish and now a sixth place finish. Um, and the vision is beca- becoming a reality, but we're under no illusions that we've achieved the vision yet. You know, you don't become an established top 10 club by doing it twice. You've got to do it consistently over a long period of time. And that's what we're now going to be aiming for. Because there are plenty of clubs that we might even talk about who've done it and overperformed and then subsequently have fallen back down. Um, Southampton, obviously one example. Um, can you, I've read or seen you saying that this, the point about becoming a top 10 club in the Premier League is that that makes you more sustainable. Can, can you explain that a bit more to me? So is that in terms of kind of the funds that you're earning or, or the players that you're able to attract? Can you, can you talk me through that? Sure. I mean, first of all, if you're finishing in the, in the top 10 uh, in the Premier League, then you're a long way from relegation. So that's a, that's a very positive thing. Um, secondly, the revenues for achieving a top 10 finish are significantly higher than for a, for a bottom half finish. And thirdly, it gives us an opportunity to attract the best players and hopefully keep those players for longer but also attract good young players that we can develop and then potentially sell in the future, um, which generates more revenue for the club, which enables us to be more sustainable going forward. So the model we have isn't rocket science. It's not something that others haven't done before. It's just that we're trying to do it on a, uh, I guess, a more consistent basis, um, which then gives us the opportunity to stay in that top 10 position. So you're saying if uh, you're, when you're speaking to players that you want to come and join the club, if Brighton is not your, your traditional kind of big club, is that you saying, well, look, we, we are established in the top 10. This is this is one of the ways that you would sell that to a player. Is that how it works? It's a complete package because, first of all, you know, generating more revenues and having an owner like Tony Bloom that's prepared to invest gives us the chance to build the best infrastructure. So our training ground is probably one of the best in Europe. Um, so it gives the players the best chance of preparing properly for games, recovering properly from games, Um the stadium facility is world-class. It's 32,000 seats. They're sold out every week. So all the fundamentals, the basic infrastructure is in place. And obviously, if you're finishing regularly in the top half of the Premier League, you know by definition, you've got good players and, and you're playing potentially good football as we have this season. So the whole package that we sell to players is is, is important. Um, you know, We're not a Manchester United. We're not a Liverpool. We haven't got the tradition that those clubs have of winning many titles. So we have to be smarter, we have to be cuter, we have to be prepared to sell ourselves in a different way and, and that's what we do. So it would be as just for, because it's kind of hard for, for me and for the listeners to imagine the, the way that these meetings would go. Are you saying that there's a sort of, uh, I don't know, like a, there's not going to be a pitch deck presumably, but, but how? No, it is. Oh, it, it, there it is. It is. Okay. Um, and, you know, that, that will involve video, that will involve other people in the club contributing to the meeting, the coaches, the player care staff, um, the sort of people that the player is going to be working with day to day. And it is a sales process because at the end of the day, the best players have choices. And if they've got choices, then they're going to go with the club that they feel most comfortable with, the the club that they feel that has the most ambition that matches theirs. And so we have to pitch, we have to sell like any other business. And uh, I think sometimes that's sort of misunderstood by, by fans that, that you know, it's not a case of picking up the phone to a player or his agent and saying, would you like to play for us? You know, you do have to sell, you do have to convince the player that you're a good club to come to. Yeah, come on, come to Brighton. Everyone who's a Brighton fan thinks like, that's the, that's the pitch, right? Pitch done. 
Of course. But, you know, the other thing is the city. I mean, the city has got so many attributes. It's a beautiful part of the world to live. Um, and, you know, that is part of the pitch, you know, where we where we are, where we live, where we train, where we play, the, the community that we live in, the proximity to London, all those things are saleable assets as far as the club are, are concerned. So it is an overall uh, sales process. And, you know, very often it's that complete package that convinces a player to come to us over going somewhere else. Fascinating to hear you talk about it like this. Because, of course, Paul, your, your title, I guess, is CEO, right? So you're effectively the guy running the business of Brighton Football Club. How, how does that look different to uh, a normal business, if you like, in terms of the job? Uh, in many ways, no, because at the end of the day, I'm, I'm responsible for trying to get this business to be as successful as it can be. And our business just happens to be high level sport. So, you know, my job in that context is to try and do everything I can to give the players the best chance of winning football matches. That's probably the easiest way to sum it up. But in other ways, it is different because the scrutiny that we're under day to day, sometimes hour by hour, is very different to any other business, I think, in, 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 in the country. Um, not many people jump on the train or get to their office or get to the school playground and start talking about their bank account. You know, they, they, they do talk about their football club. They do talk about their football team, their best players. And, um, you know, from, from young people to, to very senior citizens, you know, the football club very often is the, the first and last conversation of a, of a day or a weekend. And uh, from that point of view, that means this job carries a significant amount of responsibility because people's weeks can be determined by how well the team does. And, you know, they can have a good week if the team's doing well and a bad week if they're not. So... Sometimes we feel the responsibility of, of people's own sort of lives in a, in a small way. And, uh, you know, that's part and parcel of, of running a football club and being part of a football club. Do you think there's a misunderstanding among fans about how much a football club has to be a business? Because like we're saying with the recruitment angle, a fan of a football club sort of thinks, oh, well, everyone's just playing because, you know, they love they love my club so much. Instinctively, sure. I imagine if they thought about it a bit more, they, they wouldn't necessarily think that. Um, but there is this strange divide, isn't there, between this like huge passion for, for all of these teams and then the reality of trying to make something that's, in your case, many other clubs don't seem to do this, <laughs> to make a club that's financially sustainable. Yeah, look, fans um, only really care about the team and the results. And I totally understand I am a football fan. Um, but behind that, you know, we employ close to a thousand people um, across the club, you know, including on a match day. So... In that context, we have to look at it and run the club as a business because lots of people's livelihoods and incomes and their ability to pay bills depends on us running it as a business. And sometimes those two things don't mesh well with fans. You know, they don't like to hear that we're a business, we're a brand, we have to protect our brand, we have to manage our business very carefully because at the end of the day, it's really the team and the results that they most care about, which is totally understandable. But from our point of view, there are two things there. You know, We have to run things as a business and if we run things well as a business, that gives us the best chance of getting the best results on the pitch, which then of course keeps the fans very happy. So uh, from my point of view, reconciling the two is, is the most important part of this job. So it must be important to, to message now I'm sounding like someone who works in business to to message that quite well, right? In order that people understand it. And the best way to do that, Kate, is is to be transparent, is to be open in in your communication. Be prepared to do plenty of fans forums during the year where people can ask you directly 
why this, not that, you know, what are you doing here? Why are you doing that? How are you doing that? Because the better that they understand what the club's trying to achieve and the way it's trying to achieve it, the more likelihood that fans will understand that, that it is possible to run a football club as a sustainable business, but also be a successful football team within it. Um, but that takes work and it takes patience sometimes because sometimes fans don't want to hear certain answers to certain questions. And um, that's just, again, part and parcel of this job. It's, it's something that you can't really shy away from, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's one of the things I remember. Actually, I think during COVID, you guys were one of the, or possibly the only club. I, I remember who were giving these like regular briefings and trying to make sense of what was going on. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. And and again, we didn't we didn't set out to be the only club. We 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 did one press conference early on in COVID because we were under so much pressure from the media to explain, you know, why aren't you playing? Well, when will you be playing? And if you do play, how will you be playing? How are you going to manage all of this? And there wasn't a lot of communication around at that time, not a lot of clarity. And we took the decision to do one press conference and it was so popular um, and so successful in the sense that people appreciated what we did, that we ended up doing it on a weekly basis uh, throughout COVID. But no other football club really joined us during that period to do that. And I think at the time they were quite happy for us to do it because <laughs> um, the risks of saying something wrong and upsetting the government at that time were pretty high. Um, but yeah, I think it's just part of the culture of our club. We're, we're open, we're transparent, we try and we try and demystify this business because at times it is a little bit of a bubble for people. And, and if you're not in the bubble, it can seem a little bit bizarre and complex at times. But at the end of the day, it's sport. It's there for people to enjoy and, and have fun. And it shouldn't be that complicated. Very interesting hearing you talk about this in terms of the, the huge range of people who work for the club generally, because speaking to speaking to Brentford last week, as we as we mentioned, they were talking about the the way that the kind of owner philosophy goes all the way down through the club, down to the bottom and back up again. And the key point is having a club that is like effectively united and everybody knows their jobs and that sort of thing. And I think it's from the outside, it seems to me as though Tony Bloom, your chairman, his obviously he's a lifelong fan, his you know, his granddad was on the board, so there's a lot of heritage in there. Um, it feels as though it must be very important to Brighton to kind of have this like consistent approach to the club where everyone like understands what's what it's all for. Is that your experience of it and is that something you work on day to day 100 percent. i mean tony has a very clear vision um for how he not only how he, where he wants the club to be and and um where he wants the club to get to but also how we get there um so not only do we have a very clear vision we also have very strong values within the club the way we treat people the way we act towards each other the way we communicate as i said before very openly very transparently and these are all things that that tony sets at the top and it's my job to implement you know on a day-to-day -day basis and uh i think that's very important in any organization alone a football club to have a a clear vision, clear values, behaviours that, that employees and, 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 and in our case fans can expect from us um, and from each other. And uh, yeah, we try and apply that principle or those principles every day. And now I think it would be great to talk about somebody who's the more public face of, of, of the club, which is Roberto De Zerbi, of course, the manager. Now, within the context, I think is fascinating of the way that he joined the club, which is that unlike many clubs like a mention and one in particular I'm thinking about a lot at the moment, um, there, there seems to be a sort of sudden rush and carnage as soon as a manager leaves. Yeah. Whereas in your case, now clearly there's no particular reason 
well, there's a specific reason why Roberto was, you know, more available than he might have been. But there's no reason why necessarily you'd be able to immediately get your man. But it seems as though at Brighton, you have quite a clear plan. Like, Graham Potter did so well with you. Three years, you gave him the time to develop. What happens next? It feels as though that was part of a part of a process rather than necessarily like, wow, we've got a great manager and what happens next? Yes, we try and have maybe 20 or 25 roles within the club regularly assessed for what would happen if that person was to leave. Um, what is the succession plan? Who would be the person to take over? Um, are they inside our, our club already or do we have to look outside of the club to secure um, the replacement? Um, and that's an important part of any uh, successful business really actually having a succession plan in place and knowing what's going to happen if if one of your key people was to leave and in graham's case it was a month into a new season so it was far from ideal timing but we did have a succession plan ready roberto was very much the the lead candidate should graham leave um and of course you also need a little bit of luck with any succession planning because the person who's at the top of the list for replacing the person that's leaving has got to be available then they've got to be willing to come then you've got to try and make all of those uh, things come together at the right time in order for it to, to work. Um, and although we would never say we were fortunate with the, the timing on Roberto because he was available because of the war in Ukraine, which is obviously not, not fortunate for anyone at all, at least of all the people there. However, it meant that Roberto had left Shakhtar the next in, in Ukraine, had returned to Italy, was available to work at the time that we needed him to. And when we met, of course, the chemistry then has to be right. You know, you've got to actually connect. It's like any other recruitment process. You know, an employer needs to connect with the person they want to employ and vice versa. And we were lucky that we did. We got on really well with Roberto. He had done a huge amount of work on us. So he was very familiar with our club and our players and the way we play. And there was a great meeting of the mind. So within a re relatively short period of time, we were able to agree a contract and bring Roberto into the club to replace Graham Potter. And now I suppose the rest is history. Yeah. So he'd done a lot of, I've heard you talk about this a bit already, but he'd done a lot of work on you as a club. I'm interested to hear more about that. Do you mean that he had been studying you generally as part of his like, or do you mean that, you know, he prepared really well for the interview and both, this was clearly both. something? Yeah, right. both. I mean, I think he, um, uh, Roberto is a, a football obsessive. Uh, he, he, loves, <laughs> yeah. he loves watching football even when he's not coaching football. So I think at the time, the work that Graham Potter had been doing with us over three seasons had caught the eye of quite a few people around the football world, um, not just in this country, but overseas. The style of football, the type of football that we were playing, the type of players that we had. Um, the progress that we'd made in the Premier League as a relatively small club, bearing in mind that prior to joining Shakhtar, Roberto had worked for a, a similarly sized club in Italy, Sassuolo, so, and they had overperformed against some of the bigger names in, in Italian football. So I think he, he looked at us as a, as a similar sort of project. And he had also done a huge amount of work coming into uh, the interview process where he clearly studied all of our players. He, he knew their strengths, their weaknesses, their attributes, where he thought he could improve them, the sort of style of football he could play with the players that we had, the systems that he could deploy. Um, and so that meant, even though his English at that time wasn't uh, at the level it is now, I'd say now if it's eight or nine out of ten, it was probably three or four out of ten when we when we met oh, him. Oh right, yeah. He okay. still managed to communicate through uh, his assistant, who acts as his interpreter, 
in a way that was really compelling and really convinced us that A, he wanted the job, which was really important, but B, he knew what he was coming into and that he had a plan once he got inside the club to to do what has, has subsequently been done. Um, he's a very modest guy. He's very down to earth. He's, um, he's hardworking, he's diligent, he's passionate, he's intense at times, but all of these things are needed at the top level of sport. You know, you need that combination and above all, he's a fantastic communicator. He inspires us all. And even me and Tony, he pushes every day to to, to go further, to be better, to have bigger ambition. Um, and that's really quite inspiring in itself and uh, quite energising. You'd imagine it would be the other way around, wouldn't you? You'd be imagine it would be you guys trying to set the targets and the manager trying you, you to You would. Like... That's normally the case. <laughs> that, you're absolutely right, Kate. That's normally the case. And, um, you know, sometimes our job, we feel, is to sort of like take the pressure off of, of the head coach and the manager, try and sort of deflect a little bit of the attention either away from him or onto us or in different directions just to give them a little bit of headroom as they, as they do their work. But in Roberto's case, a little bit like the way we play football, he invites the pressure. Uh, he, he almost <laughs> likes it, thrives on it. And uh, I think uh, that's just the way he is. He's also pretty mercurial, isn't he? I mean, we've seen him sent off and given yellow cards on various occasions this season. Is that How does that work in terms of the, the relationship that you have with him? Because presumably it's quite up and down. You're either passionate or you're not. You can't, you can't <laughs> take the passion away from someone. Um, it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not something that's uh, an either or. You, you're either in or you're out. I think Roberto's case, you know, he'd be as passionate and as demonstrative if the coffee machine didn't work. You know, it's, it's the way he is. You know, it's not... Uh, it's it's not something um, it's not something that's false. It's not something that's um, in some way manufactured. It's just the way he is, and um, people feed off of that passion. They get energized by it and inspired by it. And yeah, of course, at times in in the football world, if it spills over what the authorities consider to be the line of acceptability, then there's a consequence. And um, Roberto's had to adjust to that line as far as English football is concerned because all around the world that line will be different in Italy it'll be different in Ukraine it'll be different in, in South America it'll be different again so yeah he's had to adjust but he's adjusted really well and of course ultimately the results speak for themselves one of my most favorite videos that I've seen of him is this extraordinary video where he's talking about how to use the sole of the foot mm. to to caress yeah. the ball right it, it went around I can't remember how long yeah. ago um but it's this this is I think from what again from what I can see from the outside and I'd love to hear more from you that seems like the kind of attention to detail that is difficult to match up to as a player or as someone working with him but but teamed with this passion for the game presumably this is what makes it such a potent combination yes and and you know co coaches are essentially educators so you know if he can pass <laughs> on and educate a particular technique that he feels is going to improve a player's uh, performance um overall the team's performance then that's part of his job and um you know education um is, is a critical part of what a coach does every day so he's passionate about it the players really enjoy learning from him um buying into his techniques and seeing them work and as everything you know you, you can't be a leader without followers and followers won't follow unless they believe in the leader so you know you have to have this combination of you know trial error um, passion for doing things differently and doing things at the highest level but also a forgiveness and an acceptance that sometimes in order to get to that level there's going to be mistakes and 
Therefore, the players need courage. The coach needs courage. He needs to give them a, a sense of confidence that if they do what he asks, it doesn't quite work. He will forgive them for that and encourage them to do it again. And then when it does work, that creates the belief and the confidence. And the belief and the confidence means they become followers and therefore the leader becomes more powerful. So from that point of view, he's got a very clear way of doing things. And it's, it's great to see, great to watch. This idea of psychological safety actually is something that we've come along come through a lot in some of the conversations we've had this season particularly talking to uh, Rob Edwards at Luton but he said himself from his playing career that he had a lot of fear when he was playing and that seems to be something that's characteristic of his generation yeah I think it's something that's really important you know again in any walk of life if, if you're leading people somehow you've got to create a safe environment for them to believe in what you're asking them to do because there's no point in asking someone to do something that you believe in passionately. You expect them to deliver. And then when they try to do it, and for whatever reason, fall just short, that they then feel vulnerable because of that. So you've actually got to create an environment where they can feel trusting in what you're asking them to do, uh, but equally trusting if it doesn't quite work. And that's what the best coaches in the world are able to achieve. They are able to get people to do extraordinary things safe in the knowledge that if it doesn't quite work, they're there for them and they will still support them and they will encourage them to do it again and again and again until such time as it actually comes off. And of course, when it does come off, confidence soars, uh, performance usually goes up, um, things, great things are achieved. And if you look at us this season, that's a great example of where a coach has encouraged players to be courageous, to do different things, do things differently. Sometimes they haven't worked for us. We've lost games, mistakes have been made but we come back the next week and we do it exactly again in exactly the same way with a little bit of modification perhaps on the technique or whatever it may be. But most importantly, the players believing that it's possible. And that's because Roberto and his coaches create that safe environment for them to do that and and encourage them to be courageous. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of the Football Ramble is sponsored by BetterHelp. Life throws many different challenges at us, and as a result, we all have our own sources of stress. Whether big or small, those stresses can impact our lives in unpredictable ways, and if we don't address them, they can have an outsized and unwanted impact. Therapy is a safe place in which we can address these issues, learn to understand them and find ways to work through them. Having therapy can be beneficial to anybody, not just people who've experienced major traumas, even if you may have not considered it before. It could be simply a time for you to get things off your chest, a way to learn positive coping skills or how to set boundaries. Ultimately, it can be whatever you need it to be. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and BetterHelp will match you to a licensed therapist. You can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com forward slash ramble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com forward slash ramble. What do you think when you see Pep Guardiola, who of course you drew with to earn Europa League football, when you see him saying about Roberto De Zerbi, oh, he is the most influential football manager working in the Premier League at the moment? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm proud for Roberto. Um, I was lucky enough to have a, a few minutes talking with both Roberto and Pep after the game on, on um, uh, during the week on Wednesday. And, you know, I can tell you that Pep is as effusive in his praise of, of Roberto privately as he is publicly. And that's an incredible level of respect. I mean, you know, we're talking here about probably one of the greatest coaches of all time, talking about, you know, a relatively, still relatively young and relatively in, in, in sort of European football terms, inexperienced coach at the highest level, and yet is catching the eye of the best coaches and not only catching the eye, but also achieving such incredible accolades. So, you know, we're we're delighted to have Roberto with us. We're thrilled to work with him. We think he's one of the best coaches in the world already as well. Um, and obviously, we're we're delighted to see the performance that he's been able to achieve with us this season. But of course, one of the challenges of being Brighton, I guess, is hanging on to all of these people. Of course. Not just Roberto. Of course. But again, yeah. you know, relative success means your profile is higher. If your profile is higher, the scrutiny is greater. People will be focused on your best people because they are the people that have achieved this success. And you've got to be prepared for that. And uh, the only way we can be prepared is to, one, protect our, our key assets, our key people with good contracts. And secondly, if, if they do leave us to go on to um, a higher level, uh, then we need to make sure our succession planning and our recruitment is just as good again. So, you know, People can spend a long time worrying about losing their best players, but what they should really be worrying about is who they're going to find to replace them because actually then that protects you both ways. If you keep your best players, you're happy. And if you've actually got a plan in place to replace them, if they do leave, then you should be just as happy. Um, and we've been fortunate through through the type of recruitment that we do that when we lose our best players, you know, Trossard to Arsenal, we had Matoma ready to play. We lost Basuma to Tottenham. We had Cushado ready to play. We lost Cucurella to Chelsea. We had Purvis ready to play to come in. So all of these things could be seen as massive setbacks. They're losing, you know, in that case, the examples have just given three of our best players from, from last season. But the three players that have come in have arguably performed at an even higher level. And therefore, you know, the, the, the actual process of succession planning has worked in those cases. You won't get it right every time. You know, we're not, we're not geniuses. We can't, we can't get every decision that we make right. Um, we will make mistakes ourselves. We will get things wrong. There will be bumps in the road. We will have times when it won't be quite as good for us as it has been this season. But we would hope that people would trust us enough, particularly our fans, to know that the processes that we have behind the scenes, the people that we have throughout the club, will continue to work in those circumstances to get it right and to put it right as quickly as possible. But there's not a sports organisation in the world that doesn't have bumps in the road. There just isn't. And, uh, you know, our visitors on Wednesday, Manchester City, had a, in, you know, an indifferent start to the season by their standards, which is why Arsenal led the league table for 90-odd percent of the season. You know, by definition, City were not quite at their best for some of the season, but look at them now. 
you know they've 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 run their race brilliantly. They're now in two cup finals on top of winning the Premier League, and they're an incredible incredible uh, football team led by you know a, a world class coach, if not the best in the world. So, you know there are times when every every organisation, football, sporting, business organisation will suffer indifference or bumps in the road. The key to actually how you overcome that is resilience and, and building resilience is something that every organisation simply has to do. And of course, Julio and CISO scores to get that worldie against them and everyone's linking, linking in with Manchester City, which is, I guess, yeah, occupational it's hazard. It's an occupational hazard. It's a consequence of doing well. And, um, you know, as always, we're, we're very proud of, of, of the players when they achieve things like that. But we also have a slight sense of dread that it just simply raises the profile even further and, and all that comes with that. But, but that's part and parcel of the game. That's, uh, that's something we have to manage. He's an interesting one, actually, because, of course, playing in Paraguay and you guys picked him up there. How did that How I'm interested to hear about the scouting process generally at Brighton. Um, I guess two questions, him specifically, but also like, because clearly Tony Bloom's kind of tech background and betting background is, is with Star Lizard. And so they use data to analyze different bits of um, sporting performance. And I'm just interested how far you can use tools like that within the recruitment process. And then in that specific case, if that was relevant. Yeah. Um, recruitment is, is, is a complex beast. Um, it's not just about data. Um, it's not just about watching players with your own eyes. It's about combining those two things, first of all. It's also looking at the psychological profile of the player. You know, what kind of character are you bringing in? Because you can have the best footballer but the worst character, and that's not good for the team environment or the club. So understanding how these things knit together, what the team need is, first of all, is where we start from, you know, what position do we need to fill? Once we've got that uh, objective, we then look at the type of players across the world that we could afford to fill that position because we have to fish in different ponds to the bigger clubs. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to afford the types of players that the biggest clubs in the world can afford. So we have to look for different uh, players in different places. And then it's a case of, you know, do they have the attributes to come into our club and into the Premier League? And do they have the, the right combination of attributes to blend with the squad that we've got and the culture of the club that we are? And then after all of that, if they get through all of those hurdles, it's then a case of, you know, can we afford them? Can we afford the fee that their club is asking for or the wages that their agent is asking for on a personal level? Will they pass the medical? Can they adapt to working and living in the UK if they're coming from overseas? Um, and then, of course, it's about integrating them into the team. And sometimes that's a, a quick process. Sometimes it's a slow process. Sometimes a young player, particularly from overseas, will take time to adjust to this country and to, to playing in English football and particularly in the Premier League. Other times they take to it like a duck to water, but as with all young people, their performance might then dip and then they have a more difficult time. So it's a really, really complex process. And uh, Julio Enzo is a great example of, of all of that, you know, where we've, we've, we've looked at data, we've looked at scouting, we've looked at psychological profiling, we've moved him across the world, we've adapted, helped him to adapt to England. He's adapted well himself, but he's had moments where he's been really good and moments when he's, you know, he's, he's struggled a little bit. So he's been not in the team and he's been on the bench and 
all of that is a really complex process of managing uh, a young athlete to reach their full potential. And that's where there's a huge team of people at a club like ours and in most Premier League clubs that help them do that. It's not just about the coaches, it's about the player care team, the sports psychologists, the nutritionists, all of the things that go into to helping the athlete perform at the highest level. So, you know, we're delighted to see Julio doing what he does. Uh, he's a great character. He's only 20 years of age, but, you know, he's worked so hard and he's English. He's worked so hard to adapt to the country. And it's no surprise that when you see the players that work the hardest to adapt and, in, and, and basically learn the culture and language, that very quickly their performance seems to follow. And, uh, you know, it's great to see young players thriving. I think we've had now this season 10 different teenagers score goals for us in the first team which is incredible, absolutely incredible. And uh, look at the young team that we played against Manchester City. You know, we had three or four players there, five players that were 21 and under. Uh, that's incredible against the best team in the world. So, you know, that is another massive, massive credit to Roberto Zerbi because he has the courage himself to play young players in the biggest games. And that in itself is, in, is confidence inspiring to, to everyone around him. The other benefit, of course, from a business perspective, I guess, of the younger players is you've you've got them before they've reached these ludicrous fees, right? That you you might not want to compete with. We can't compete with, yeah, and and that's that's why it's an important part of of our model because if we can get the best young players early, we can then develop them from a coaching perspective and a human perspective. Then they become much more valuable assets to the club, which means that we may in in the future, if we do lose them, be able to substantially. generate profit that we can then reinvest in the club and reinvest in the process. So going all the way back to the start of this conversation, being about being sustainable is about finding those gems, finding those young players before anyone else does. And by fishing in different ponds, quite often we are finding those players before anyone else because we are sometimes sitting around that pond on our own. Um, it won't be for much longer probably because I think people around the football world understand that you don't just have to go to Brazil in South America or Argentina in South America to find fantastic footballers. There are many, many countries across the whole of Central and South America and increasingly North America where you know, there is great talent and um, you know, bringing it across to England is, is, is not easy, but very often a lot of these players want to play in the Premier League. So you know, there is a desire to start with to come in this direction. Yeah, that that that's helpful. Uh, amongst the other attributes, of course, of of, of Brighton. In terms of the um, conversations about transfers in future, I know Roberto Deserve said, "Oh, we're going to need more big players to compete in all of these different competitions next season." <laughs> is that is that a pitch? I don't know. But he also was like um, talking about Moise Casado and Alexis McAllister leaving, and or yeah, not knowing where they were going to be. Is that that kind of level of transparency? transparency how does that work in terms of how you manage things in the transfer market you know we we have to be um we have to have good open conversations with the coach because going back to the recruitment process you know it always starts with a positional need and the positional need is determined by the coach um and then the answer to the positional need is ultimately the coach as well so we go away we do all of our work we come back and say this player or that player and he will say this player not that player so it starts with the coach, it ends with the coach. And that's a really important part of the process. And of course, every coach I know will want to improve their squad in every transfer window that's available. So 
you know, for Roberto to, to say we need more players, that's entirely normal and, and totally appropriate, particularly as we're going to be playing for the first time next season in four competitions and not three. So the depth of the squad and his ability to rotate that squad and the player's ability to adapt to the demands of playing European football. So Thursday, Sunday, you know, Saturday, Thursday, it's going to be really difficult. Some of the biggest clubs in the country do that routinely and their fans and their staff just expect it and, and understand mm -hmm. that that's the way it is. For a club like ours, it's going to be an entirely new experience, not just for our players and coaches in many cases, but also our staff. On the numbers stuff, I was looking on Transfermarkt and it seemed to think that you'd made a profit of 72 million in the trans two transfer windows this uh, season. That, we don't that, disclose that our, our, uh, our transfer, <laughs> our transfer dealings in any great detail, but we've certainly done. We've certainly had a very good year, you know, both last year and and we expect the year just gone, which our results will come out for this year much later in in, in 2023. But um, but yeah, I mean, when you're buying players at a, a relatively low level and selling them at a much higher level, you, you can generate transfer profits. But of course, what everyone always forgets are the ones that don't quite come off where we've bought players at a high level and, and they haven't worked out and then we have to sell them at a much lower level. So all these things are, you know, have to be offset against each other. And sometimes people only look at the times when you've been really successful and you've made, you know, huge profits. Um, they don't remember the ones where you've made huge losses. So from the owner's point of view, from from our board's point of view, we look at things over a much longer period. And, um, you know, at the moment, Tony Bloom has invested, you know, close to £400 million in this club. And, uh, you know, that's money that we, we still owe Tony. And um, we've got a lot of work to do to, to pay that back. Got it. So that's that's connected, those two things. Yeah, you I mean, we're very fortunate that Tony's not the sort of owner that is demanding us to, you know, to return money to him, you know, at, at this time. It's a very, very fortunate position for us to be in. But at the same time, I feel, you know, a daily pressure to make sure that the club is run in the most sustainably, what, a sustainable way so that we can reduce our reliance on Tony. We can reduce our reliance on his sort of generosity as we've experienced it over the last 12 years of his ownership. Um, and to actually stand on our own two feet, which increasingly we're doing. And obviously going back to the top 10 vision, the more we can be in the top 10 in the, prem, in the Premier League and the top four in the Women's Super League, which is also important to us, the less reliant we are on Tony. And that's a good thing. Do you feel some, how do, how do you manage, we talked a bit about your personality um, generally, but how do you manage sometimes that responsibility? I'd assume this would be you of having to, having to seem like you're the one, the party pooper, maybe like, you're not going to just keep all those players. Yes. And, you know, like you mentioned Cucurella, you know, you'd only had him for one season yeah. or something. And then obviously it's great to make lots and lots of money. And presumably if uh, Chelsea perhaps um, offered you a hundred million for Moise Casado or whatever, that would be good news. But sometimes I guess you're having to manage these, uh, these demands and perhaps be the the guy laying the smack Yeah, down. look, chief executives in any business, let alone a football club, are not there to be popular. They're there to run the business as effectively as possible. And, you know, in, in a football club's case, that's to protect the owner's investment. It's to ensure the coach is the players he needs to do the job he needs to do. And, you know, to make sure that all of that is explained to the fans in as clear and transparent a way as possible. Sometimes what I will say or any other colleague of mine across the industry will have to say won't please the fans because sometimes what the fans want and what the club needs can be two different things but again if you're open if you're transparent if you're prepared to explain things um usually 
the vast majority of people are, are reasonable and understand that there's a balance here um, and they will go with you. And of course, they trust you and, and you have to earn that trust and build that trust. There will be times when they won't like what you do or what you say. But that's unfortunately, that's life, isn't it? That's uh, that's the same in any business, any family dynamic and any friendship dynamic. There are times when you have to say and do things that the other person or the other people don't like. But that's just part of the job. And it certainly doesn't, you know, it doesn't keep me awake at night because I know that my focus is about doing the best for Brighton Hove Albion, the best for the, the person that owns the club, in, in our case, Tony Bloom. And it helps when you keep winning because people... That helps. Enjoy that. <laughs> this business you- is a lot easier if you win. <laughs> um, there's, no doubt, there's no doubt about that. I mean, we do joke about that all the time. But, but when you are winning matches, the whole business is a lot easier. You know, the media coverage is good. Uh, the fans are happy. You know, people want to sponsor you. Uh, you know, everything is better. You know, you can walk through the streets of Brighton and not worry too much about anyone coming up to you and having a, a discussion because 99 times out of 100, it's going to be positive. So... But things can change quickly in sport and things can go the other way. And, and when they go the other way, that's when, for me, the best clubs are tested. That's when their resilience is properly tested. It's easy when you're winning. It's not so easy when you're, you're not. Does it worry you? That's, that's exactly the question I wanted to ask. Yeah, does that, how do you manage that worry? Is it you feel like you're creating the most sustainable plan you can and look, you know, there's turns of fortune, nobody could have predicted the pandemic, that that drove a lot of clubs to the wall, blah, blah, blah. Like, how do you manage those kind of worries about, you've seen some clubs, we know plenty of clubs who've gone all the way to the top and all the way back down again, um, or even have gone out of business. How, how do you... How do you manage those fears? Do you have those yeah. fears? Or do you just feel my, like... My, most football clubs are incredibly resilient. I mean, despite... Despite the perception, you know, very, very few football clubs have actually gone to the wall over, you know, the years since the Second World War. And even the pandemic, you know, the clubs remained incredibly sustainable thanks to, you know, the support the Premier League gave and, and others. Um, but yes, of course, you know, you, you, you can't worry about what could happen. You've got to do all you can to prevent the worst happening by planning well, preparing well, working hard trying to be the best you can be every day and and um you know standing still in any sport is usually to go backwards and at the highest levels of sport it's definitely to go backwards so just when you think that you've you know you've achieved if you reflect for too long on the achievement and don't continue to push forward you'll quickly go backwards and that's something which you know we have to really guard against in our club complacency a sense of arrival a sense of the destination's been achieved it hasn't it's another step on the process of 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 of, of the journey that we've been on uh and we've got to make sure that we stay smart we've got to say stay sharp we've got to be hard working we've got to keep being humble it's really important to be humble and and to recognize that 25 years ago our club was almost out of business literally almost out of business and some of the people that were in the club at that time are still with the club so you can imagine the journey that they've been on and, and how it feels for them. But equally, they're the sort of people that if anyone around the club loses a sense of reality, they'll bring our feet back down to the ground really quickly and remind us what it was like when the phones were ringing. No one wanted to answer them because no one could pay the bills of the person who was on the phone on the other end demanding to be paid. That's not that long ago. So, you know, we, we all need to remember that, certainly in our club, and we do. So I think, you know, resilience is important, but uh, a sense of, of, of understanding where you've come from is equally important. Sounds like that's what gets you up in the morning. That's, that's a lovely note to finish on. I'd have to 
I feel like I know the answer to this and it would be incredibly naive based on our entire conversation if the answer was no, but do you, how many successes to Roberto De Zerbi do you currently have in your back pocket? <laughs> well, you know, the one thing that the chairman takes a lot of um, pride in and, and uh, spends a lot of time thinking about is, is, is the head coach's job. He would see that as being the most important appointment he makes in, in the club, far more important than me or any other member of staff. So, that's something that, that the chairman focuses on. We talk about um, and we have to plan for because we have a, a top coach who at one point in his career, hopefully not too soon, is going to be offered you know one of the biggest jobs in football. And, and we're, we're respectful of that. But at the moment, he's our coach. We're delighted to have him. He's doing a fantastic job and long may it continue. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing how it goes. Brilliant stuff, Paul. Thank you so much for spending this time talking to us. It's, it's been an no absolute problem. joy. Um, and congrats, European football. Hope it's not too exhausting. Thank you. Good talking. <laughs> so that was Paul Barber of Brighton. Really enjoyed hearing what he thought about Roberto De Zerbi and then Tony Bloom as well. It was interesting to hear about how he works, kind of sandwiched in the, between these two, what seems from the outside to be pretty big characters. And just to imagine what it might be like to run a football club. I kind of feel like I have a better idea of that, but maybe I still want to be a scout after last week. Tell us what you thought of today's episode on Twitter and Instagram at Football Ramble. You can follow us there and also on YouTube and TikTok as well. Do subscribe on your podcast app to never miss an episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at KVL Mason. Don't forget to suggest people you'd love us to talk to and I'll speak to you very soon. Take care. The Football Ramble is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. 